Good afternoon. Again, my name is Megan Marshall. I'm with Jones Lang LaSalle. I'm co-chair of programs along with chair Margie Kurkowski with Wright Hirma Architects and co-chair Tony Smaniato from Studley. A special thanks to Brian Hayes with Clarity Real Estate Advisors, Jennifer Fitzgerald with Duff and & Phelps, and Steve Rubin from Caterpillar Logistics for helping to develop today's program. This is our final luncheon of the year. We will be back in January with our economic forecast with distinct, I'm sorry, distinguished panelists from the Federal Reserve Bank. Today's program is being podcast and it will be posted to our website. If you have your MCR, you receive one continuing edu education credit for the luncheon. There's a sign-up sheet by the registration desk. Today's, oops, I skipped. And we encourage your feedback at the end of the program, so we will be handing out surveys. Today's topic, finding the bullseye, the integration of real estate and logistics. Our moderator is Keith Stauber. He is Regional Managing Director with Jones Lang LaSalle. He's focused on leading all new business efforts, expanding strategic relationships, and implementing Midwest, Midwest growth priorities across all industrial-related services at JLL. Please welcome to the stage our distinguished speakers, Rich Thompson, Managing Director at Jones Lang LaSalle, Brent Lindstrom, Director of Sales for the Americas Supply Chain Services with Caterpillar Logistics Services, Brian Hancock, President of North America Martin Brower Corporation, and Eric Pitcher, Regional Manager, Economic Development, BNSF Railway Company. Let's give them a round of applause. Thank you, um, Megan. Good afternoon, and thank you for having uh, us at your luncheon today. Uh, before we get started, I wanted to share some notes with you and just think about these as we kind of set up our speakers, if you will. <clears throat> On Friday, October 26th, the uh, U.S. Department of Commerce's Bureau of Economic Analysis announced that Q3 GDP was 2% compared to 1.3% for Q2. On Friday, November 5th, the American Trucking Association released a white paper that estimates they're currently is a shortage of 20,000 to 30,000 truck drivers. In 10 years, the ATA believes there could be a shortage of almost 240,000 drivers. In their October newsletter, the American Association of Railroads, AAR, stated that the U.S. intermodal traffic rose in September for the 34th straight month. In the last week of September alone, over 257,000 containers were moved, which is the third highest of all time. And note that October actually is usually the busiest month, and 2012 trends are only slightly behind 2006's record volume levels. This is due to both import and export traffic. For its fiscal year ended September 30th, the Panama Canal set a new tonnage record of 333.7 million Panama Canal tons, surpassing the 2007 record of 312.9 million Panama Canal tons. And by the end of 2014, the uh, Panama Canal is scheduled to open its third set of locks. So you might ask yourself, of course, these statistics are encouraging, and it sounds like the economy is heading in the right direction, but today's topic is supply chain and logistics. So let me kind of tie some of these together for you. The GDP is obviously essentially a measurement of the company's ability to move goods. A shortage of truck drivers impedes that ability to move those goods and or will influence those, how those goods are moved. 
And the rail statistics demonstrate a potential answer to the truck driver shortage as well as serve as a predictor of the country's well-being. The Panama Canal will have an impact on how goods are transported not only within the U.S. but around the globe. Each of these are a factor or influencer in the supply chain and logistics operations of every company and the leadership of those companies are determining how and where they will ship their products as well as to where to locate their distribution and manufacturing facilities. So that brings us to our panelists. Uh, Rich Thompson, leader of our JLL Supply Chain and Logistics Consulting Group, will help us first define what the term logistics means, as well as share some of the terminology associated with the field of supply chain management. Eric Pitcher, Economic Development Director for the uh, Burlington Northern Santa Fe Railroad, will share with us how the railroad's roles in the world of supply chain continues to evolve. Brian Hancock, Whirlpool, will provide the user's perspective and the practical application of logistics studies and how they determine the site selection of his company. And finally, we'll hear from Brent Lindstrom, Caterpillar Logistics Company, a 3PL company that's providing supply chain and logistics services to companies who don't have the internal resources or the desire to design and move their own goods and what advice they give to clients. So with that, Rich, I'm going to turn it over to you to kind of help us put some framework around the discussion. All right. Thank you, Keith. Can you hear me? Is, uh, am I coming on here? Terrific. Uh, thank you, Cornette, for, for including me on the panel today. I appreciate being with you all, I just want to uh, give you a little perspective of where I come from. So I'm a consultant, and I grew up doing supply chain consulting. My first job out of college was with Airborne Express, the overnight company, and that's how I got into this world of supply chain. So I happened to work for a commercial real estate firm, but I'm not a broker, and I didn't grow up in the real estate industry. So I want you to know that because that's the perspective I have on it, and that's also the perspective that I want to share with you because I work with a lot of brokers and some know a lot more about supply chain than others and because I haven't met all of you I have no idea which ones are smart and which ones maybe don't know as much so I'm going to give you a quick rundown okay so from my perspective um, if I were to go around the room and I would ask each one of you to give me your definition of supply chain management what would you say I want you to think about that. I'm not going to put anybody on the spot. But if I went around and I, I asked everyone for a definition of what supply chain management was, give some thought to what you would say to that. Okay? Now, a lot of you hear about logistics. So is supply chain and logistics, are they synonymous? Are they the same thing? A lot of people think they are. You know, people say in the same sentence, supply chain and logistics. In fact, the name of our group is Supply Chain and Logistics Solutions. So what, what, what are they? Um, so let me give you a, a very quick overview of how I think about supply chain. Supply chain management is a big umbrella of everything that a company does. More so for manufacturing or retail or distribution or consumer products. But it's, it's all of that stuff that they do with under that umbrella. Okay, and the way I think about that is, is, you know, very simply five key functions. Plan, buy, make, move, and sell. Plan, buy, make, move, and sell. So the plan function is traditionally demand and supply planning, trying to figure out how many you're going to sell and how many you're going to buy to fulfill. Uh, buy is your traditional sourcing or procurement organization. Make is the manufacturing. Move is transportation, distribution, inventory management. 
and sell is sort of customer service, order management, and sales. So that's a very kind of simplistic way to look at it, but all companies, or most companies, have those kinds of functions within their own, within their own companies. And that's the big umbrella of supply chain. So what's logistics? So logistics is really that subset right there. It's the move piece. So it's transportation, distribution, inventory management that most, I think, people would consider to be logistics focused. Okay, so logistics is a subset of supply chain management. And then, of course, uh, you have suppliers and you have customers. And when you start to think about that, that, that gets into the extended supply chain. So all companies have their own supply chains, and then you have an extended supply chain. Okay, does that make sense? Uh, so let me move on. So, so why, why this topic at Cornet? I actually think it's a great topic trying to connect supply chain and real estate together because I think you know, there's a lot of folks on the real estate side that don't think a lot about supply chain or don't interact and there's a lot of supply chain folks as I was, a practitioner that didn't really spend a lot of time on the real estate side. So in my mind, this is the one slide that really kind of makes the point of why it's important. When you think about the total operating costs of a distribution center, for example, the vast majority of those costs are in logistics. And by that, I mean transportation, inventory, and labor. And this is a representative graph, so I don't want you to get hung up on the percentages. But my point being that as much as 80% of the total operating costs of a distribution center or a manufacturing plant can be in logistics. And the real estate piece is actually quite small. It could be 3 to 5% of total operating costs. So it's a critical part to get right. You have to pin that solution to the ground, which is what we all do. So I, I don't mean to you know, imply it's not important. It's critically important. But from a supply chain vantage point, it's, it's kind of the tail end, right? So from a supply chain standpoint, um, you're really focused when you're thinking about where and how many and how big, you're thinking about the other 80%. The, you know, the freight costs, the labor costs, inventory, et cetera. Make sense? So it's more than about real estate to supply chain executives. But again, critically important. So I want to just take a look at the freight bucket because for a lot of companies, that's a big concern. Uh, it's our point of view, and everybody that I've ever talked with, it'd be interesting to hear how these guys all feel on the panel, but it's our point of view that transportation costs are going to continue to go up, and could go up as much as 20% in the next couple of years. And it's not just driven by oil prices, but it's driven by a whole cast of other things, which I won't get into, but that, that's a critical component. So... From a consulting perspective, uh, one of the things that you know, we will do quickly, and it doesn't take a lot of time and energy, is what we call a centroid analysis. And a lot of companies will, will, will take a look at that uh, as a simple way of getting a gauge for you know, exactly where they ought to be to optimize you know, their freight costs. And this is just an example. But when you think about freight costs, one of the, the real simple ways to get a gauge on that is how far are you away from your key customers and your key suppliers. 
And so there's a lot of tools and methods in which companies can look at that, but uh, this is just one very simple one. But all things being equal, you want to be closer to your customer. So uh, that's the point I wanted to make here. One of the other things that, uh, that we're seeing, which I think is quite interesting, is that real estate now is reporting into supply chain for industrial companies, which makes sense. Um, so, you know, I, I could name a few examples. One is Kellogg's, for instance. Um, you know, we're working closely with them, and their real estate group is asking, you know, what, is, what are our supply chain bosses focused on? You know, what, what are their metrics? Because, you know, we're trying to figure it out and, 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 and vice versa. So uh, we're seeing that trend. Supply chain and, and supply chain organizations within companies is a new thing. Um, I joined, uh, and Brian and I were just talking about this, but I, I joined a $5 billion food company uh, that had, you know, one of Walmart's top 100 suppliers, and I was the first supply chain guy in the company. Uh, they had transportation guys and distribution functional, you know, directors and things like that, but there was no supply chain. Supply chain organizations within companies have really evolved in the last 10 years. But we're seeing that real estate is now reporting into supply chain, you know, for, for those kinds of industrial companies, which I think is an interesting trend, but I'm not surprised. So I, I want to hit uh, just on a couple other things high level before we start to, you know, get other perspectives from the panel. But um, here's some of the things that I think about in terms of big global trends in supply chain. Uh, and I'm going to hit on each one of these here really quickly. One is freight costs. And I teed that up just a few minutes ago. It's our opinion freight costs are going to continue to go up. And oil is one factor. But, you know, when oil is $70 a barrel, it creates different decisions than when oil is at $140 a barrel. And what it tends to do, and it's not just about oil, but when freight costs go up, when transportation costs go up, the tendency is to get closer to your customers. So instead of having one big distribution center, you're going to have, you're going to have more facilities, smaller, closer to your customer. We're not seeing that in reality today from an industrial real estate perspective. We're seeing you know, big box market being very, very tight. But I think as the economy turns and as freight costs go up, you're, you're going to see a trend towards more smaller rather than fewer larger. Labor costs, another huge cost bucket. Um, what's interesting, and it's Kimmy back there, right, from China, right? So in China, as you know, uh, number one outsourcing country in the world, India number two, Eastern Europe number three, but the labor rates in China are, are going up pretty steadily, 15 to 20 percent annually. Uh, it's still a terrific country uh, for manufacturing, but um, that's changing the, the balance. So being a supply chain practitioner is all about managing trade-offs. It's all about costs and service. It's a big math model. And those key math pieces, the cost pieces, are labor, transportation, inventory, and real estate. And so uh, those things are always shifting around. And, and labor in China... The labor rates are going up. Freight costs are going up, making it more expensive to bring stuff across the water. And an interesting study done by, by Bain, uh, or no, I'm sorry, it's Boston Consulting Group. They came out recently last year and said that it was their opinion that within five years, 
the cost gap between China and the U.S. will close. So uh, we'll, we'll see how that all plays out, but, uh, but labor is a key component. The other that you can't model for from a supply chain standpoint is uh, incentives. So uh, this is a critical needle swinger for a lot of companies uh, when they're thinking about site selection. Again, modeling you know, all the costs against their service requirements. You know, do you need to be within a one-day transit time of your customer? Do you need to be within two hours transit time of your customer? Do you need to be within three days? That all obviously is, is a key component to modeling it. But taxes and incentives can, can shift your decision making and your site selection uh, decisions uh, depending. But you can't model for them, but I think you all know those are, can be pretty significant sometimes. Uh, the other trend in supply chain and, and true in our business as well, real estate business, is sustainability. And I know this is an eye chart and you can't read it, so I'll just uh, share with you. Do you know what the number one sustainability initiative for supply chain practitioners is? Panel members, anyone? Packaging. So packaging is the number one uh, because what Walmart has found, for example, is that with a 5% reduction, 5% reduction in packaging, meaning being smarter about what box sizes and all that kind of thing to eliminate all those little plastic pellets you find in, you know, in your shipping containers, uh, would result in a $3.4 billion savings across their supply chain. Think about that. 5% reduction in packaging equates to $3.4 billion in savings across their supply chain. Why is that? Because it takes trucks off the road. You know, if you're smarter about how you package, you can get more on a truck. They could take off over 200,000 trucks a year, which equates to, you know, X millions of dollars in fuel and all that kind of thing. So, Supply chain is a critical uh, driver of carbon emissions, and, uh, and you'll see sustainability becoming increasingly more important to companies. The last is risk mitigation. And uh, the, the point I want to make here is that uh, 10 years ago, supply chain practitioners didn't think about risk so much as they do now. But when you think about the tsunamis in Japan and the flooding in Thailand and uh, you know the uh, volcano eruption in Iceland and all the things that came about in the news that created so so many disruptions in supply chains for companies uh, it's become a critical issue to figure that out and what does that mean to you in the real estate world it means that companies are looking for alternatives they're not just going to bring everything in through LA Long Beach and you know, ship it across to Chicago by rail. They're going to do some port diversification strategies, and they're going to find ways to, you know, not put all their eggs in one basket. In the same respect that you don't put all your investments in one, you know, one stock, you diversify. And so companies are thinking about that. And that plays with transportation as well. They're not going to be solely reliant on truck, as, as companies are today. Almost 75% of what moves today moves on a truck. But that's why uh, intermodal is uh, the fastest growing mode of transportation today because companies are looking for ways to, to mitigate risk and you know, lower their costs and, and those are some of the ways in which they're doing it. So I know I've talked fast, but uh, in summary, global supply chain trends are always changing and it creates opportunities for all of you because you gotta be on top of that and as, as companies think about how to deal with these trends, their networks and their industrial 
footprint is going to change. And, and the other thing I, I just want to leave with you is that it is more than about real estate, even though we're all real estate professionals. Uh, and, and the more you can understand supply chain, I think the, the stronger and better business advisor you'll be to your clients. So I just want to leave you with that, some high-level stuff. Thank you. So I'm going to pass it to Eric, I think. My eyes are not as good as Rich's, so I have to bring a visual aid with me. I can't quite read uh, what's on the monitor over there. So, uh, My name is Eric Pitcher. I'm with the BNSF Railway here in Chicago. I'm the Regional Manager of Economic Development, and, and maybe be a good idea to tell a little bit about how I got to that part of the business. I actually spent the first 12 years of my career in state government here in Illinois and local government doing economic development work then 15 years in the, in the electric and natural gas utility industry in Indiana and uh, working for NIPSCO. And then came to work for the railroad, which is the last place on earth I thought I'd ever work. But interestingly enough, from an economic development standpoint, it is probably one of the key features now, understanding transportation towards winning projects either for your community or if you're in the real estate business for your particular development. Uh, if you not understanding the transportation dynamics put your projects, can put your projects at peril. So what I'd like to do is talk a little bit today about how we developed our, we developed our product offering in, at the railroad to try to meet that challenge. When we talk about trying to find the bullseye, <clears throat> uh, I work for a class one railroad, there's seven of us in the United, in the North America, and uh, we compete with each other uh, Vigorously, we go head to head with a company called Union Pacific, or as I like to say, Brand X. And uh, we have a, a very robust competition with them. And we're constantly trying to find a little bit better model, a little bit better tool or product to put it in front of our customers. The challenge that we have <clears throat> is in constantly trying to find a way to make the communities or the real estate developments adjacent to our rail line more attractive to those customers than it is to our competitors, to those communities or developments adjacent to our competitors' uh, lines. We've had some very good successes. They've had some good successes. And what I wanted to talk about a little bit today is how we, in Chicago, met that challenge several years ago to be able to to bring intermodal traffic from where it was located in the closer to the urban area towards a new area that would allow us to be able to bring more traffic to, to our railroad. The challenge was how do you get companies that have been shipping containers and rail cars to older rail yards within the city out to the edge of the urban area where you have a little bit more room to work with and you're closer to some of the key highway interchanges. <clears throat> what we did is we developed a facility along with Centerpoint Properties out in Elwood, Illinois. And we had to figure out how to utilize our network, how to utilize our, our capacity, and what tools we need to put together for our, uh, for our customers. At first, by the way, for those of you who don't know where Elwood is, it's just south of Joliet. It's about 70 miles from the loop. And initially, our customers thought that we were out of our minds asking them to truck all the way down there. Uh, as it turned out, it's been so successful that, our, that the Union Pacific decided to locate an intermodal facility right next door to us. So I guess they thought it was a good idea. And you've seen this slide before. Rich just talked about it a, a moment ago. 
But again, the transportation cost is about 50% of what you'll see when, you're, when a company is making a site location decision. And that becomes very important when you're talking about the relative impact of the cost of real estate versus the impact of having that right location close to those key modes of transportation. And we'll see a slide later on that shows more graphically how that, in, that in, can impact a site location decision. One of the key things driving customers today is how long it takes them to get a product from one place to another. Um, as systems become more and more efficient, companies are trying to drive operating costs outside of their systems. They have to find a way to be able to drive down the transportation costs. And you've probably seen this slide before also, but basically it highlights that highway congestion is becoming a, a bigger and bigger issue. There's other issues relative to the trucking industry, but highway congestion is going to become a key factor for us in the future. The railroads, and whether it's the railroad that I work for or any of the other railroads out there, can provide an opportunity to be able to find, provide a solution for customers that want to be able to get away from this railroad highway congestion. But in order to do that, there needs to be a facility that can handle rail traffic. The network that railroads use, and this is a, this is a typical class one west coast to uh, midwest rail network that you see here, is, the, um, is designed to be able to bring product not only that's imported from Asia, but increasingly product that's being exported to Asia. When we started Logistics Park Chicago down in Elwood in 2002, initially fewer than half of the containers being shipped back to Asia had a product in them. Today, the vast majority of those containers have something being shipped back in them. And those are all international containers at this point. So what you're seeing is a, a very strong two-way traffic that's going back and forth utilizing these lanes, mostly through the, from Chicago to the Puget Sound area and from Chicago back to the LA Long Beach area. Similarly, you'll see similar kinds of networks going from Chicago to the East Coast ports and increasingly with the development of the Panama Canal, you'll see some of that traffic move to the, to the Gulf Coast as well. Interestingly enough, <clears throat> several years ago, probably three or four years ago, we started intermodal service between Houston and Chicago. But when I would talk to people at our Fort Worth office and say, what do you think about the Panama Canal? What impact is that going to have? And they say, oh, not that much. But then we started container service between Houston and Chicago, just in case something comes up through the Gulf of Mexico. Logistics Park Chicago is just one example of, of how you can utilize rail to be able to attract businesses either to your, your real estate development or to your community. But you have to have several factors in place there. You have to have the ability to bring in a unit train. For a railroad, that usually means 100 cars or more. Uh, trains that come into Logistics Park Chicago right now are between 8,000 and 10,000 feet long. So you physically need a lot of room. The rail yard itself is about 750 acres. The industrial park surrounding it is up to 6,000 acres if you include the land also around the adjacent Union Pacific development. But you also have to have direct rail coming off that main line to serve individual buildings. Because there'll be a number of companies that will want to be able to get direct boxcar traffic to your facility. Uh, and many times, increasingly, you're seeing third-party logistics firms are taking over that transportation function for, uh, for different companies and they want to be able to get both that direct rail service 
as well as container service. But what we're talking about is very physically very, very large, large developments. And that's a key thing when you think about developing rail service. And this next slide sort of underscores what the cost, the operating cost advantage is to a company. In this example, if you take two facilities, and they're only separated by 15 miles, and they're using 2,000 containers a year, which is a sizable customer, but not a, a huge customer, the, you can see the impact on the, on the, uh, on the bottom line immediately, $180,000 a year in operating cost savings, simply by being that 15 miles closer. So if you think about it in terms of real estate, if you're gonna have a 10-year uh, a lease on a building, and you're looking at another $1.8 million that you've got to be able to make up on, on rent or, or uh, other kinds of concessions, it could, be a, it could be a serious challenge. I think the, the bottom line is, and this is a, a, the next the last slide I have is about an advisor tool. If you're looking at trying to understand what is the, the impact of being able to move product on rail as opposed to truck, especially for long distances, it, all the railroads typically have some sort of a tool like this on their website where you can go and get a general idea of what sort of savings that you could obtain or your customers could obtain by utilizing rail. Now again, this is a sales tool uh, and, there's, uh, and your customers will probably want to go to someone who can do some detailed analysis for them to understand specifically what the, what the savings could be for their, their individual projects. But this can give you a general idea of what those, those benefits are. Uh, recently, um, there was a, a note on the news about uh, oil prices going down to the mid-80s. Um, we typically think that uh, the baseline for oil prices right now in, the, in uh, West, West, Texas, West, Te West Texas intermediate crude is about $80 a barrel. Uh, to be able to effectively produce oil in the United States, use hydraulic fracturing or fracking, you have to be able to produce it at, you have to have a market price of about $60 a barrel. The good news is we're going to be able to make a lot of our oil. The bad news is it's going to be expensive and it's going to stay that way for a long time. And that's going to continue to drive more and more of our customers, all of our customers, to try to look for solutions where they can be able to ship product long distance by rail. And they're still going to need trucking for short distance. And they're still going to need all the highway infrastructure. But long distance, more and more of that traffic is probably going to go by rail. Well, thank you very much, and I think next I need to turn this over to Brian. Yes. Hi, my name is Brian Hancock. Can you hear me? Okay. My name is Brian Hancock. I'm the president of North America for Martin Brower Corporation. Probably many of you don't know Martin Brower Corporation. It's probably one of the largest ones you've never heard of. So I'm going to just give you who we are. I only have two slides. Um, Martin Brower is... Uh, the largest food distributor to quick-serve restaurants in the world. Uh, we distribute to about 50% of McDonald's worldwide. We also do Chipotle and Subway and some of the other big quick-service restaurants. Um, so when you think about what my job is today, it's to explain a little bit about how consumers feel about supply chain logistics and how that fits into real estate. What I want to do is just give you a little bit of an idea of a company like ours. We have... Um, like I said, we're about a $14 billion company with about 7,000 employees. Only about 35 of those employees work here in Chicago. The rest are all over the world, inside distribution centers, servicing customers. Um, they move 
504 million cases of food, and we'll talk a little bit about that and why that's important. But what I want to do is I want to, um, from a his history perspective, I used to run a company up in Green Bay, Wisconsin called Schneider Logistics. I was, the, uh, I was responsible for primarily most of our uh, logistics and supply chain customers for Schneider. They're the big orange trucks that you see on the, on the road. And two of our customers were Ford and GM. I'm going to start with them, and I'm going to talk about it from a consumer perspective. So hopefully you'll feel that there's, this is a part of you because you've experienced this. Um, first question is that I want to ask everybody, who spends the money, especially in the U.S., in the North American economy? Who spends it? Women spend it. Women spend 70% of every, I have four daughters, and <laughs> believe me, they spend about 108% of what I do. So about 70% of every dollar that's spent is spent by women. Women have very particular needs in specific areas. And what I want to do is to kind of walk you through how those decisions that they make drive supply chains, which then drive uh, real estate decisions. First off, Ford and GM. When my daughter got into a car crash, which has happened several times, um, we took that down to the dealership. And nowadays, they can go in and say, oh, I can see what happened. Here's the door. Here's the 32 parts that I have to order. And I can have those tomorrow. And then I can have your car fixed in four days. Now, if you would have done that 20 years ago, that car would have been in the shop for like a month. Um, how did they do that? What happens is the mathematics that Rich talked about, um, those mathematics are all driven by, and this is my second most important question, driven by what factor? What's the most important factor on where people put buildings? How far a truck driver can drive in a day? Now, how many of you would have answered that question? That is the most important thing on where real estate needs to be developed. Now, what's important about that is because when you think of the consumer need, Mrs. Jones, Mr. Jones, his daughter crashed the car. He's got to get it fixed, but he's got to have it back because she needs to go to school. She needs to do all the other things. And so what happens is they take it down. They set it up. How do I get parts in here the next day so they can have that fixed, painted, and back in that house within a week? So that's where the distribution networks are set up. Just so you know, you can put 16 buildings in the United States, average size of about 800,000 square feet, and get to 99.9% .9 of the population in less than one day from a truck driver. That's how long it takes. That mathematics is what drives where those buildings are going to be located. So when you think about an auto company, it's all about fixing that car for that young daughter from Mr. Jones. Now, the second piece I want to talk about is appliances. I was a senior, uh, I was the vice president of supply chain for Whirlpool Corporation. Whirlpool owns the brands of Whirlpool, KitchenAid, uh, Maytag, every, every kind of appliance. About 60% of the appliances in the world come from Whirlpool Corporation. Now, 20 years ago, when Mrs. Jones wanted to purchase a new appliance, how would she prepare for that? She would say, uh-oh, I've had this now for 12 years. My olive green is getting a little bumpy over there. And she would know it was going to die. She could feel it. Women just had that sense. So she would go down to Sears, and she would order out of the catalog, and they would say, that'll be here in a week. That doesn't happen today. Mrs. Jones, her refrigerator goes down. 
She's calling from work saying, hey, I'm coming down. I'm going to need this thing today. Can I come down and see you at 10? She goes down. She picks out what she wants. That thing has to be delivered within 24 hours because her house depends on having that appliance. A very different requirement than was there just 20 years ago. And so what you see is over the last 10 years, after Whirlpool purchased Maytag in 2006, they went through a complete what's called a, a system and optimization. We went in and we built 13.5 million square feet of warehousing to service that market, to make sure that that appliance could get down into Mrs. Jones's house within 24 hours. Now, the important thing about appliances as well is 40% of all appliances are purchased on what days? Day after Thanksgiving, Labor Day, Memorial Day, 4th of July. So it's a very promotional business, but in case you haven't ever wondered, appliances are really big. And what you have to do is you have to get all those really big appliances as close to Mrs. Jones as you can, and then be ready when Home Depot decides to discount that thing $500, and they blow out $10,000 in a day. So it's important when you think about the real estate decision, it's all about how fast can I get a driver to move that product into Mrs. Jones's house and, and she'll be happy with that product. Because that's the loyalty that's driven back into the consumer environment, wherever, whether it's Home Depot or Lowe's or Sears, whoever it is you buy your appliances from. Last one I want to talk about is McDonald's. Uh, like I said, Martin Brower is the largest distributor for McDonald's. We do 504 million cases of food a year for McDonald's globally. What's the most important thing for Mrs. Jones when she's taking her kids to McDonald's? First off, she's probably going to want to have like a salad, and she's want to have it fresh because that's about her, right? And then there's these little guys in the back, and what's the important thing for them? Happy meal, French fries, and the right toy, right? If you don't have the right toy, you might as well not even be open. And so you think about how do you make sure that every single restaurant is coordinated with what Mrs. Jones is thinking in her mind. She's thinking, okay, they want to go to McDonald's again. I'm going to go. I can get that salad that's got the apples in it. They can get their Happy Meal. And oh my gosh, I hope they got that little red car toy. Please have that toy. And it's our responsibility as supply chain people to make sure that that's available. So what that takes is a network of about 25 facilities. Those 25 facilities will get that product literally to Mrs. Jones so that she can always be sure that when she goes to McDonald's, that toy and that salad is going to be there. And it's fresh. Freshness is a key in the way that they perceive what they're getting in that food distribution network. Now, the reason I walk you through each one of those scenarios, the automotive industry, which is how do I get my car back on the road, the appliance industry, which is all about how do I keep my house going, to the third, the food industry, which is how can I make it quick, fast, and my kids aren't screaming in the back of the car. Every single decision that is made by that lady of the house who's spending 70% of the dollars in the U.S. requires a logistics network to support it. That logistics network is essential when you think about developing real estate. When, what I would encourage you to think about as you go out and you're working with your customers, ask the final question of who is this really supporting? Who's that final consumer? Because what you'll be able to do is you go in and you do, I know Jones, uh, JLL has 
a lot of mathematics that they do when they're, when they're presenting things. I know that each one of your companies has the same thing. Make sure that you know who you're trying to service because it's important that, like they said, you know, 50% of the cost is transportation, 4% is real estate. But I will tell you, we spend probably 10% to 20% more time trying to make sure we get the building in the right place. The only other thing I would ask you to think about as you, as you watch over the next 10 years, when you see regulation that is impacting truck drivers, the first comment that was made, we were going to be short 200,000 truck drivers. Is anybody in this room out there telling their sons and daughters, when you get a career, you're going to be a truck driver? No. They're not going to be there. There's going to be a shortage of 200,000 drivers. So you think about, how do you use a rail network to get things close enough so that those facilities that are making sure that daily delivery of appliances, hourly delivery of fresh salads is available, you have to make sure that you're able to support that multi-tier network. Every place and every company that you work for that you're developing a, a site for or you're developing a big transportation and infrastructure uh, facility for has an end consumer. It can change by the stretch of a pin of some bureaucrat somewhere who says, you know what? Somebody got mad. They say the roads aren't safe. Truckers can only drive 10 hours now versus 11 hours that they could do last week. What I would tell you is that completely shifts the transportation model that Rich talked about, and it can cost billions if they don't go out and put their buildings back in the right spot with the new law. Every company in the world has gone through that at least twice in the last 15 years. Because as those regulations have changed from 11 hours to 10 and a half hours, the circle becomes smaller that that driver can drive in. And that's what's going to drive real estate development in the future as those regulations go past. So again, make sure when you're asking the question, ask about Mrs. Jones and what is she really trying to get out of this network. It'll help you develop a more uh, sustainable as well as a much more productive market. So with that, I don't have any more slides. See, I'm not a slide guy. Turn it over, Rich. <laughs> Thanks, Brian. All right, good afternoon. I don't know that I can talk about little red cars, but I'll share a little bit with some other cars that uh, we deal with. My name is Brent Lindstrom. You'll notice uh, that Caterpillar is not in that name, and I'll explain that in a minute. Um, we, uh, I work for a company called Neovia Logistics, and uh, we are one week old uh, as of yesterday. Uh, Caterpillar spun us out about two years ago, put us on the market. Uh, we found a buyer, closed a deal in August, and now we are a uh, wholly owned company of a company called Platinum Equity. So my goal today is I'm going to give you the context of the third-party logistics business, and I'll frame it around my background both within CAT and within the third-party logistics business. But you can take a lot of the comments today, and you can take them across any industry segment, and they work similar, and, and, but, but the nuances of customers are all different everywhere in the world. So. First things first, this is a little bit about us. Uh, ironically, Cat Logistics got started about 25 years ago. Uh, a little company called uh, Land Rover came to Caterpillar and said, um, we want to establish a North American presence. Would you handle our distribution to our dealer network in North America? Because we don't have a way to do that. Caterpillar said no, not interested, and uh, went around a couple of times. And eventually, they convinced Cat that, that it was a good idea. And uh, we were born, and so here we are. So today, we are about 4,000 employees. Uh, we're, we're in uh, a lot of different parts of the world, and I'll show you a little bit of that in a minute. We focus in, in uh, the automotive industrial and, and the MRO, which is 
if you've ever been to a mining site or an engine or a, uh, a mining site or an energy site, a lot of these plants require a lot of upkeep and maintenance to keep those things running because they never shut down. So there's a constant flow of material always going to those locations. This is our footprint. So those are physical buildings that we operate around the world. Um, on average, you know, the magic size seems to be about a quarter of a million square feet. You get beyond that in, in the bigger facilities and are a little bit harder to run in terms of efficiencies, it seems. But we have some that go up to a million and a half, and we have some that go down to five or 6,000 square feet. So it really depends on the need. Um, you can't see it down here, but we're in six continents. We have 25 countries, and that represents about 100 customers. So many sites in 3PLs, this is pretty common. One thing 3PLs can do for the customers is they can co-locate businesses and, and spread the cost of that overhead across multiple clients, which is good for, for everybody involved. Okay, first question is, and this is a little hard to see, but um, the, one of the questions they asked, what is a 3PL? Basically, a third-party logistics company can handle any one of those bits and pieces in the supply chain for a company. And I'll show you a chart in a minute that goes back to one that Rich put up in his first presentation. What you can't see there, and it's a little faint, is that you know, the revenues from 3PLs last year or two years ago were a half of trillion dollars. So if you took all the 3PLs, added up all the revenues, it's a very, very large industry, and it's extremely fragmented. So, and the big thing to kind of note here is too, there are asset-based 3PLs and there are non-asset-based 3PLs. So the easiest ones that you would know of as asset-based would be like uh, FedEx, UPS, they have a network of some kind they're trying to fill more stuff in. So you own either ships, planes, trucks, rail, other things. If you're a non-asset provider, you tend to not invest in, we don't typically as 3PLs own buildings. Our deals are typically on average in the 3PL industry. They're about three years in length, so it's kind of hard to build buildings and justify that. So we tend to uh, rent and lease and find those as we need them as well as contract a lot of those other services through a lot of the companies we compete with, we also do work with. So the 3PL industry is a little unique in terms of how they have to go about doing, doing their business. Um, Back to Rich's slide earlier, if you look across the boxes he put up between the plan buy, make, move, and sell, I've kind of highlighted there uh, on the bottom with those little orange bars, a 3PL will outsource any one of those pieces. So if you go across there, you can find a 3PL to basically take and handle any one of those areas of the supply chain on your behalf as a company. Um, and below there, as you go across that grid on the bottom, the further you get down into that, or where you get into a lot of the, the execution pieces of a supply chain, so whether you're driving a truck, you're, you're operating a public warehouse, whatever it might be, and as you go up, you integrate those services uh, for much larger and more sophisticated companies. Interestingly enough, if you looked at this model for Dell Computer, Dell Computer actually has gotten to the point where they outsource all of that. The only thing left for Dell Computer anymore is the brand. They've outsourced everything they do over the last 15 years, so they, they don't do much on their own anymore. Um, another little interesting chart, I mean, why would you want to use an outside third party to, to run your supply chain? The easiest way to explain that is, 3PLs have to have a business uh, a case for you, and, and I always try, I was telling Steven this earlier, it, you, you typically they can do it better, faster, or cheaper, or hopefully some combination of all three. Uh, in the case of uh, faster for, for Land Rover, it was a way to get into the market much quicker than they could have done on their own. A lot of times companies, uh, as they grow, uh, particularly in the area of transportation, as mentioned before, they're not used to handling large volumes of transportation spend, and over time they just keep adding on, adding on, and adding on, and before you know it, they've got a pretty large amount of their investment tied up in transportation and they don't have typically very many people managing it at all. So 3PLs, and you, it's a little hard to see there too, but typically uh, what these all point to is you can, you can do more with less. You can increase the velocity of your customer, as was talked about before, but you can do it with less inventory if you do it smart. And so 3PLs tend to offer solutions that help companies figure that out. Um, 
Two examples I'll give here, and this is from a real estate perspective. Um, we kind of run both extremes, and I don't think this is unique to probably any third-party company out there. We have some clients, in the case of Land Rover, who's been a client since 1986. In that instance, you have the ability to work with them to do the modeling and do a lot of the thought-based uh, approach to how do you want your supply chain to work? Who are you trying to satisfy? What is the, you know, what's the promise your marketing people are making to them in terms of when they buy their vehicle? So you have the luxury of planning out a network very carefully in terms of where you want to place that facility. And, and we always try to coach our clients, be very, very, while it's a small spend in the great scheme of things, it, it impacts everything else you do. If you don't get that building right and you don't get it in the right place, you're going to pay for it over and over and over for the life of being in that location. So it's incredibly important to know where you want to be and know what you're trying to do and get that right at the front end. Because as was shown before, you can be off by 15, 20 miles and it can cost you a lot of money in the long run. And, um, in this case, so this is a good example. So Land Rover started out with one location. We now have 13 and we operate around the world. So in this instance, we do do a lot of modeling and that modeling ties the modeling of the transportation to the modeling of the inventory to the modeling of the location. And so when you do that, you can figure out where is the best place to be to give them the most flexibility. Because we, we'd all like to think we know how to predict the future, but nobody really does. So more and more companies, and even on the Caterpillar side where I came from, they're going to figure out every way they can to push as much of that risk downstream as they can. So 3PLs are increasingly being asked to take more and more risk in the supply chain and what they're willing to contract for. So uh, the other extreme, and this is more typical, and this is where it brought up the conversation I had with Stephen. Um, this is an operation that we set up last year. It's, it happens to be in Australia. And you'll notice the difference between the previous one and this one is this one's measured in years. This one's measured in months. Um, the client came to us and said, we have to have something running in five months. Uh, it's about 200,000 square feet. It's got a very specific part of the world, and, and we don't know how to do it, so we need you to help us get that done. I see this happening more and more often. As companies try to mitigate their risk and spread things around, or as markets change, they're looking for a way to get there quicker and faster than their competitor can get there. So in this case, we had about five months, and, and if we did not have a realtor or a broker that was our partner, we would have never been able to do this. Um, at the end of the day, they know the local markets. They know, they know the intricacies of what's going on there. Three PLs, while, while we know, you know we're in lots of parts of the world, there are lots of parts of the world, we just can't keep up with all the constant changes going on, whether it's with the ports, the transportation, the labor, whatever it might be. So in this case, ironically, uh, in this instance, the lease that we ended up here with was longer than the contract we had with our client. I think our lease was 60 pages long, and I think our contract with our customer was about 20 or 30. So, the other part of this is the, the lease side of it. More and more customers are asking for more flexibility. How do you get me more flexibility to get out? How do you get me more flexibility to grow? How do you get me more flexibility to shrink? All those different factors that, that help, again, them mitigate their risk are things that they will push down to a 3PL and, and try to help mitigate some of that, some of that activity. So that's uh, just in a quick nutshell. That's a little bit about how the third-party logistics business works. And, um, when we get into the panel, I can answer questions both on the 3PL side or from the capital perspective, which is where we came from. So, thank you. Thanks, Brent. Uh, before we turn it over to questions to the audience, just a couple of thoughts. And I think we want to, uh, we have a hard stop at 1.30, right? So, okay. Just tell us and uh, give us the hook when you're ready. Um, but uh, what Brian described in terms of your customers, we kind of describe, or we use the term consumption zones. And one of the things that we really feel strongly about why Chicago is going to maintain its strength in terms of the hub, really a couple of reasons. Number one, within a one day's drive, you can reach a third of the GDP of the United States. You can also reach 83 million people within a one day drive time from Chicago. 
Uh, additionally, all of the class one railroads, which are basically the largest railroad companies in the United States, all merge into the uh, Chicago area. So again, backbone of the transportation system of the United States. So again, we feel good from a transportation and real estate, industrial real estate perspective for Chicago. Um, so just a couple quick thoughts there. Before, any questions in the audience uh, that we can have for our panel? Go ahead. We have a microphone as well. No? Questions? No? All right, well, I'm gonna, let me kind of get you started. Um, talked about, some of the panelists talked about uh, changes in the uh, driver regulations, which again plays a big role. And I think um, Brian or Brent maybe can speak to, but we've got legislation that I think is going to be effective July of 2013 in terms of um, limiting the number of hours that drivers can uh, be on the road. Can you speak a little bit how that impacts, again, what you decide from a location perspective or locations and, and how that impacts your model? So, so a couple of thoughts on that. I don't know if you can hear me or not, but um, th this is a, a very serious issue both here, but then also as you talk about a lot of the traffic that crosses north and south back and forth into uh, Mexico, um, the ability to move freight over time is just getting in increasingly more and more difficult uh, for lots of different reasons. But you know, for us what it means is not only is that regulation kicking in, but the industry as a whole is also getting better at sharing information about those drivers that are not up to qualifications or have had problems in the past. In the past, drivers could leave one company and go to another company and kind of move around and avoid getting themselves in trouble uh, if they had other issues. And so that's tightening up as well. So in terms of locations, again, it, it's getting back to risk mitigation. They're going to be looking more at intermodal. How do I, how do I uh, you know, supplement that? Uh, do I have smaller facilities in more places so that, again, I'm closer to other options that I have? But um, I, I don't know how we solve this because at the end of the day, we don't have a young and up-and-coming uh, population of people who are going to be driving trucks, and that's, uh, that's not an easy one to solve. So. Yeah, the only, the only thing I would throw in there is the safety element, which has been the argument all along, um, you know, that drivers are, are not safe when they're on the, the road too long, I think is an important factor because now as we, as we cut that back from a, you know, an 11-hour to a 10-and-a-half-hour, and then we have an half, half an hour for lunch, what happens is it puts more drivers on the road during times when other people are trying to drive as well because a lot of the drivers will try to drive at night um, they'll do other things and so again this electronic record that's going to follow drivers will continue to decrease the number of drivers but it's also going to put more trucks on the road <clears throat> in some of the uh, more difficult parts to get to in the country so uh, you know just to give you an idea the the we we, we do all of the McDonald's distribution in, in New York last year our are all of the, the tolls going on to the island were doubled for the drivers. Now, when you think about that, it was, it was set up around times and those types of things, but it puts trucks in the middle of the city at night when there's a lot of other things going on. And so you have to really make sure that when you make reg regulations in California that they actually apply in particular areas. And I think that's, that's a key you're going to see going forward. It's all around safety, but in some of the cases, it's really not, uh, it's not helping us out from a safety perspective. Eric, uh, maybe could give us a sense of scale. I think that the railroads, well, a couple things. The railroads are kind of, I'll say, licking their chops with the tr trucking regulations. I think that pushes customers to you. But give us a sense of scale in terms of how many trucks fit in a boxcar. You know, what are the true economies? How many trucks are you taking off the road by going to, via, via rail? Typically, you can figure about having between three and four trucks in a boxcar. There's a wide range of different kinds of rail cars, but usually three to four is uh, typically what you'll see. And uh, a, a train of containers 
could easily have 300 containers on it. And from a, from a, a labor standpoint also, this is one of the great differences between the, the trucking side of the business and, and the rail side of transportation business. You'll have those 300 containers moving with two people in the train, operating the train. But in order for that to work from the rail side, you have to have that last mile or last 100 miles of trucking service. It has to be incredibly efficient, and it's usually going to be in an urban area, or else the rail system kind of goes from one place to another and can't get rid of the product. So it's, it's there, the, in fact, um, the largest customers of the class one railroads are trucking companies, when you think about it. They are our largest individual customers. So it, it's, it's kind of unique when you think about it. We really need them. Right. at the safety and regulations, but is the fear of shortage truckers, is there any chance it won't really play out that way? Uh, from, from my perspective, uh, demographics are against us. Uh, in the past, if you look, since deregulation of 1980 um, through now, you had a couple of different uh, scenarios where the economy took a dip. I would have said if in 2007 we wouldn't have had the uh, depression, recession through today, um, you would have already be experiencing probably double the cost for a, for a transportation provider. Um, so it's, it's just a matter of time and economics. Right now, the economics of uh, the big companies like Walmart, Home Depot, they're just slow. They're just not selling what they used to. The consumers aren't buying it. When they come back to pre-levels on a, on a per capita basis, it'll happen. It'll happen so fast that we won't be prepared for it is our fear. Yeah, and if I could, if I could add, it, it's, it's hours of service. It's, uh, nobody wants to be a driver, and the demographics, you know, it's, it's some ginormous percentage of the drivers now are over the age of 55. 55 yeah. uh, you've got uh, the other issue about insurance has gone up. You've got a lot of trucking companies that have gone bankrupt and sold off their capacity outside the U.S. You have oil prices, which are still bouncing around, uh, you know, fairly low in the 80s. But uh, it's all of those things. I've you know, heard it called a perfect storm. Uh, not quite like Sandy, but it's going to hit. <laughs> and it's going to hit when the economy turns. And, you know, I was moderating a panel at CSCMP, the big supply chain conference, uh, this year. And the, the state of logistics report, and the number one fear is it won't be capacity in the market when the economy turns. And you do not want to be a supply chain guy and not be able to get a truck to fill your load. That's a bad thing. And so what do you do about it? You got to look for alternatives. Back to risk mitigation, reducing costs. And you know, 75% of what moves around moves on a truck. And if you can't get a truck, how are you going to do it? It's either air, rail, or water. And so you know, rail and intermodal really are only alternatives, which is why we're seeing such an interest in all this. Hi, I'm Steve Rubin with Neovia Logistics. I'd like to thank everybody, first of all, for a great presentation today. Thank you very much. Um, when I first entered the business, I, I kept hearing the term uh, specific uh, center of gravity study, and I thought that had something to do with astronomers and celestial bodies and so on, but I wonder if anybody might take a minute or two to just explain to the rest of the people who maybe aren't familiar with that term what that means. Can I, I'll take a quick, uh, Steve, thanks for asking. I put up the centroid analysis slide earlier, which is a center of gravity study. 
So center of gravity study, think about it this way. If you have a long beach, you're on the beach, Lake Michigan, and you have one lemonade stand, where would it be? Be in the middle, right? Because you get easier coverage. If, uh, if you knew all your bathers were on one side of the beach, where would you push your lemonade stand? Center of gravity would shift towards them. You know, if you had two lemonade stands, where would, it, that's a center of gravity study in its basic form. Um, so it's not the end-all, be-all. It's an important aspect uh, to minimize miles. You have to also consider all the other factors you know, we talked about in the math model, labor and inventory, and more importantly, service coverage. So how, you know, how far can you walk the lemonade without spilling it kind of thing, you know? But that's a center of gravity study. That's a centroid analysis, if that helps answer the question. Yeah, the only thing I would add there, Steve, is, you know, 15 years ago, companies would uh, push material out and, and be willing to transport it further because it brought the inventory costs down now. But the inventory, it's, it's taking a little bit of a shift, right, because transportation has gotten to be so expensive. Inventory is now becoming a smaller part of the decision-making process. So it, it's shifting from where it was even 10, 15 years ago. Hi, I'm Sarah Gorski from Aztec. Uh, I have a question. When someone was, I think it was Eric was mentioning uh, packaging materials, and I've noticed that a lot of uh, more retail-based companies are switching to non-disposable packaging materials. Is that changing your side of the business at all in terms of, you know, uh, travel weights or convenience, or does that create other factors that complicate things? When you, when you say non-disposable packaging, what I, what I would tell you, the trend in our industry is to go to zero waste, and that's all the way from uh, transportation through packaging and disposal of that. And so when you think about what you'll see more in the, uh, in the uh, packaging space is things that can be disposed of down to zero waste. Now, that can be either recycled, so you'll see a lot of return logistics, and you'll see a lot of return centers that are put up next to big distribution areas. You also see a big element of being able to find, I mean, and I know that some people would think this is bad, but you'll see a lot of incineration. Um, so you see a lot of packaging that is able to be incinerated so that it goes away. Um, from, a, from a waste perspective, landfill versus creating a, a way to incinerate things without polluting, it's, it's a little bit easier. And so I think you see a couple of different things that are happening from a packaging perspective. But like for McDonald's, Probably within five years, those stores will be zero. Their, their idea is to be zero waste. So literally, that building, there will be no waste put back into the system because of the pack. So you'll see disposable packaging, but recyclable and all those other types of things are going to be a big part of that. You'll also see companies like ours tying up with, with green recycling companies so that we'll bring products in, they'll take products out, and that makes it much easier versus the big garbage or, or you know typical municipal garbage uh, facilities. So packaging is a big, big deal, but a lot of the packaging is tied to oil. So every time you see a plastic packaging or a styrofoam, just remember that's oil. So it's, a, it's an interesting play as well. Yeah, I just the other side to that too, on the industrial side of things, if you look at the automotive companies, and you can look to Europe for what's probably coming our way or even pay attention to what happens in California, but automotive companies are becoming 100% responsible for every piece of uh, packaging material they create in the process of manufacturing or in the process of supporting their products. So if, if you make a plastic bag as Mercedes-Benz, you get that plastic bag back and you have to deal with it. So companies are getting better at figuring out how to get that waste out of there for lots of different reasons. I'm, that's a so, big deal. Yeah. For McDonald's in Australia, we run our trucks on the oil that they cook the french fries in. 
French fries comes back, we mix it with diesel. Trucks smell a little bit like French fries, but I mean, that's, that's the space. We don't dump oil back into the system at all anymore. We utilize it in that's diesel. That's a driver recruiting tactic. That's a recruiting tactic. <laughs> fries. <laughs> Do you have little kids following the trucks on the street? <laughs> it's really an interesting thing. It used to be ice cream trucks. Now it's that's right. <laughs> I think that's all our time today. But again, so thank you, panelists. Thank you for having us at your luncheon today. Thank you so much. Um, really interesting presentation. A lot of fun facts. Please remember to uh, fill out your surveys. And thanks again.